Our scripture this morning comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And if you notice some excitement in my voice, it's because this is one of my very first, very favorite scriptures. Uh, So I'm excited to get to focus on that this morning. So hear now the word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So if you were here on Christmas Eve, you got to hear Pastor Greg give a message about change. And he started with the question, can people change? Is is it possible for people to change? And I think it was a really great message for Christmas Eve. We have a lot of people come to Christmas Eve services that might not come to church very often. And so posing that question is a great way Uh, to start thinking about, is it possible for change to to occur in my life? I'd like to offer my uh, answer to that question, and my response to that question is, yes, people can change. In fact, they must. I don't think it is possible for people to not change. How many of you look exactly today as you did five or ten years ago? No hands in this service. Some people in the 830 service were kind of snarky with me. And how many of us think exactly the same now as we did 5, 10, 15 years ago? How many of us have the exact same social circles that we walked in 20 years ago with no change? See, part of being human is to change. We all change. We all change throughout our entire lives, physically, mentally, our personalities evolve. I love to tell a story about when I was in college, my roommate had this weird thing he did with his mouth when he talked. When he was trying to be funny or do something, he would talk out of the side of his mouth like this. And it was always really weird to me that he would talk like this. And then I think it was sophomore year, Michelle looked at me and she said, stop doing that. Stop doing what? You're talking out of the side of your mouth. Just by being around my roommate every day, I started taking on some of his mannerisms. To be human is to change. We all change. We must. Especially this time of year, people start thinking about change. Um, Specifically positive changes that we want to make in our lives. You can probably guess the most uh, common, the three most common New Year's resolutions. I I Googled it. And Google said that those were uh, eating healthier, exercising more, and spending less money. We all are thinking about how can we make positive changes in 2019? How can it be a better year than the year before? How many of you have made New Year's resolutions this year? Some hands. Not many. Okay. How many of you made them last year? 
How many of you kept them all the way through the year? No? Okay. To be human is to change, and it's natural at this time of year to be thinking about being intentional about that change in a positive way. How can we change for the better? New Year's resolutions uh, usually have two things in common. Usually, it's focused on improvement. I did know somebody who made a New Year's resolution to eat less vegetables, but I don't think that's the common, <laughs> the common practice. Uh, and usually, the New Year's resolution is based on the person's own capacity to change themselves. The self is the agent of change in most New Year's resolutions. Somebody's just going to try harder to do better. And this is what a New Year's resolution is. The Bible talks a lot about change, and there's a Christian buzzword for change. It's formation. How are we going to be formed? We talk about spiritual formation. We talk about formation of habits and patterns in our lives. Formation is the Christian concept of change. That's how we talk about it. And Paul talks a lot about this concept of spiritual formation. But nowhere is it more clear than Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The bulk of the message this morning is going to be walking through those two verses, looking at it phrase by phrase and in places word by word. Uh, we will have these phrases on the screen, but I actually encourage you, if you have a Bible with you or if there's one in the pew near you, to go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 12. Because while the word or phrase will be on the screen, I believe it is helpful to see it within the context of those two verses so you can see where we are. So as we look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, uh, I would like to pray that God will open up these verses for us and have a word for us from, from this scripture. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. Please use this letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome to speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. And so Paul begins this chapter 12 in verse 1 by saying, I appeal to you, therefore... And I have to stop already, because even though I've only been here six months, I can tell you that eventually you will get sick of hearing me say this. Whenever we see the word therefore in the Bible, we have to stop and ask, what is it there for? It's there for a reason. It's pointing to something that has already happened in Scripture. And so when Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, we have to stop and ask, why? What, what, what is he appealing to? And so we need to know a little bit about Romans chapter 12, a little bit about Romans as a whole. So it's written to Paul, and it's often called a letter from Paul to the church in Rome, which is true but a little misleading because it makes us think of a singular church in Rome, when in fact there was multiple house churches that were all divided sharply on one issue. Whether or not you are a Jew or a Gentile. And so these Christians in Rome, all of whom that are confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior, are still divided about their history. Because some come from a Jewish background and are indeed still Jewish. And some are coming to this Christian faith as a Gentile, 
as a non-Jewish person. And so this division exists in the churches in Rome. The other thing that's important to know about this letter to the Christians in Rome is that Paul did not write this letter with a foundation of a relationship already built. A lot of his letters he wrote to churches that he had either started or he had at least visited and he had gotten to know the people. But Romans, the letter to the Romans, is a letter written without that foundation laid. Which perhaps might be why it's the longest of Paul's letters. Because he has not preached to these people. They have not heard his theology. And he needs to start from scratch. And so he starts at the beginning. And the first 11 chapters of Romans might be the densest 11 chapters in the Bible. Because it is so theological. And oftentimes best read in two verse chunks (laughs) before you move on. And the last thing I'll say about the book as a whole, as a letter, is the culture in that time. Loud to the people. The whole thing in its entirety. And so we're going to turn to Romans chapter 1, and we'll probably be here all day, but we're going to read all 16. No, we're not going to do that. Some seminary professors do assign that to you, though, to read standing up the entire letter of Romans to see what it would have been like for somebody to read this letter to the church. So when we read it today and we start in the middle and we hear these two verses, we're doing it without the context the original hearers would have had of reading chapters 1 through 11, which lays out a lot of what Paul believes about theology, about who God is, and who Christians are in light of who God is. And so we come to chapter 12 with that context, that Paul is writing this letter to a church that is sharply divided, to a church that would have just read chapters 1 through 11, that is all based on his theology, to a church that he does not know very well. And he says, I appeal to you Therefore, based on everything that came before this in my letter that you just heard read out loud about all that God has done for humanity, because of all of that is the basis for my appeal. And this word for appeal carries with it the weight of a a, a begging, an urging. Paul is saying, please, Christians in Rome, because of all I have just said, but more importantly, By the mercies of God. Because of what God has done. And notice too that Paul calls them brothers and sisters. He calls them this because he doesn't have this relationship with them. But he wants to acknowledge that we are a part of the family of God together. So he is creating this relationship on the fly in this letter. Brothers, I appeal to you. I urge you, therefore, because of all of the great mercies of God. This appeal that he's about to make is not based on Paul's own authority. It's based on the mercies of God. It's a lot harder to say no to his urgings if they're based on the mercies of God. If it's based on, I appeal to you therefore because I really want you to do something, it's a lot easier for them to say, we're not going to do that. But he says, by the mercies of God, is is the foundation of this appeal, this urging, this exhortation that he is making to these people that he's calling his brothers and sisters. 
And so then he moves into what his actual appeal is for. And it's to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. To understand this, we have to look all the way back at chapter 1 of Romans, remembering that they would have just heard this. In chapter 1 of Romans, Paul says, starting in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. So it's like a a cognitive thing. And he goes on to say that these people are trading the truth about God, the truth about God that he's about to lay out in the next 11 chapters, for a lie. That they have a futile way of thinking about God, a wrong way of thinking about who God is. And then in verse 24 he says, Therefore God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. See, Paul is drawing in chapter 1 a connection between wrong thinking about who God is and the way we act in these physical bodies that we all have. That there is a connection between our ethics, the way we live our lives, and the way we think about God. And he lays all that out right there in chapter 1 and then talks about it in these 11 chapters. And then he urges them, based on the mercy of God, to present their bodies as a sacrifice. And these early Christians would have really understood the word sacrifice, especially the Jewish Christians in their midst. But Paul wants to go on and give them three descriptions of this sacrifice so they understand what he's talking about. He's not telling them to crawl up on an altar and literally sacrifice themselves the way they would have had animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. So he clarifies it with three words. He says, this sacrifice will be living, it will be holy, and it will be acceptable to God. And these three words in the Greek are not given preference over each other. It's a list of three. Uh, We often translate it living sacrifice and then after it holy and acceptable. But all three are descriptors of what this sacrifice will be. It will be living. It is not just a death that, that you are called to. It is the way you go about living your life that is a sacrifice. And then the sacrifice will be holy. Remember that the word holy in scripture usually means something like set apart with a purpose. The nation of Israel was called God's holy people because he set them apart to make them holy. And so your life will be set apart as you offer it to God as a sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, one that is set apart. And because it is living and it is holy, it will be acceptable to God. This is what Paul is urging the Roman Christians to do. To sacrifice their very lives, their very beings to God. 
as a sacrifice that's living, holy, and acceptable. And in the next phrase, Paul says that this is your act of spiritual worship. Now, my preferred translation of the Bible in English is the NRSV, but this is one of the places where I believe it fails pretty miserably. Because that word for spiritual, isn't most worship spiritual? It's hard for spiritual to be something that doesn't engage, it's hard for worship to be something that doesn't engage a spiritual element. And in fact, the word that's used here in the Greek means something more like logical or reasonable. So Paul is saying, because of the mercies of God, everything I just laid out in the first 11 chapters, I want you to give your whole lives to God. And in fact, you should do that because it's the logical or reasonable response to what God has done. It makes sense. This type of sacrifice for you, the Roman Christians, makes sense. It is a reasonable act of worship for you to pour out back to God. And then he lays out a little bit about what this life looks like, this life that's lived as a living sacrifice in verse 2. It's an often quoted verse in Scripture. And there's a contrast that Paul sets up, and it's very clear. He starts off with the negative part. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. I, I loved our, our water explanation this morning. I used to use Play-Doh with my youth when talking about this idea of conforming. In fact, four of my youth are here today. I'll let you try to pick them out after the service. But this idea of being conformed is kind of like Play-Doh, that it can be molded and shaped, but it's still Play-Doh. It's not of a different substance. It's just changed its shape. And this idea of being conformed in the Greek carries with it a little bit of this idea of changing shape, of changing something outward. It's a real change, but it's a change because of external pressures into something of a different shape. And so the, the external pressure that Paul says to this conforming is the world, or literally the age, this age, this present time which is different for us now than it was then. So we have to stop and ask the question, is our age still trying to be an external pressure on how we live our lives? Is the age we live in, this world, still something we have to worry about conforming to? Yes, it is. And so this still applies to us. If the world had changed and we no longer had to worry about this, then this does not apply to us anymore. But it, it's evolved, but it is still an external pressure on Christians to conform. And so that's the negative part of this contrast. Do not be conformed. Notice the passive. It doesn't say do not conform yourselves, which would be active. You're the one doing it. It says do not be conformed, which is to allow something to happen to you by something else, the world. But then the positive side of this contrast is, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Now the word here for transformed, you might think it comes from the same word because we had the same root in English, conform, transform. Those come from the same word formation, right, that we talked about earlier for change. 
But in Greek, it's a totally different word. The root is not even the same. This word means, yes, an external change based on an inward reality. So an external change that's based on an internal internal reality that has changed. And notice that the change that will happen is also something internal. Paul says, but be transformed. I want to stop and ask, how, Paul? How do we do that? And he says, by the renewing of your minds. And I wish I thought, oh, that's how, great. But no, I still ask, well, how, Paul? What is, like, how do we renew our minds? How do we allow our minds to be renewed? Notice it's still the passive. This is something happening to us, not something we are doing. We cannot transform ourselves, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. I'll offer in a moment a list of some things that I believe carry with them power of a renewed mind. But before we do that, we need to finish the verse. So Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And then we get a purpose statement. The words, so that, makes it so clear that, okay, now we get, to, we get the why. And it's a pretty great purpose. Because with a renewed mind and a transformed life, now it's so that you may discern what is the will of God. Who wants to discern the will of God? <laughs> I'd love to discern the will of God. Because that will is good and acceptable and perfect. And Paul says the key to discerning the will of God, the key to having a transformed life, is to have a renewed mind. Now the church throughout the centuries has uh, recognized specific practices as what we call means of grace. Means of grace. A means by which humans can experience the grace of God, a means of grace. And before I show you this list, I want to be clear that grace, oftentimes talked about as like an act of forgiveness, well, I'll, I'll give grace, you know, uh, maybe you have a, a professor who's like, he gave me some grace, um, certainly had some of those in my schooling, uh, some that didn't. But grace is not just forgiveness. It's actually a gift from God that carries with it the power to change. The word we often translate as grace literally means gift. It's something that God gives. And it's not meant to just leave us as we are, but it's meant to change us in some way. And so the list that I'm going to offer you now is a list of practices that the church throughout centuries has recognized as means of grace. To be clear, these are not the only means of grace, not the only ways in which we can experience God's grace, but they are ways that Christians over the centuries have believed that we can intentionally participate in the renewing of our minds. They're split into two categories. We have works of piety and works of mercy. And then within each category, there are individual practices and communal practices. So in the works of piety, the individual practices are reading, reading, meditating, and studying the scriptures, prayer, fasting, regularly attending worship, healthy living, and sharing our faith with others. 
Now, these are ones that our uh, times, our, our Christian culture now, really gravitates towards. And perhaps that's because we live in such an individ, individ, individualistic society that we gravitate towards the individual practices. We talk about reading, we talk about meditating some, that's one that's been lost a little bit. We talk about studying scriptures and prayer. But as we go through this list, uh, I offer it to us this morning as a way for us to say, what is a means of grace that perhaps I have not uh, experienced in my life? What is a way in which I haven't intentionally sought the renewing of my own mind? And so as we look at this list, maybe look for one or two that stick out to you that you think, you know what, I haven't ever done that. And maybe God wants to transform my life this year through participating in this means of grace. And so some communal practices of works of piety are regularly share in the sacraments, which we are about to do. Christian conferencing, which is just an old way of saying group count accountability, coming together with other Christians and talking about things, and Bible study in a community. And then we have works of mercy, which are works that are done outwardly. Uh, and there's individual and communal as well. The works of mercy are doing good works, visiting the sick, visiting those in prison, feeding the hungry, and giving generously to the needs of others. And then the communal practices of the works of mercy. Seeking justice, ending oppression and discrimination. For instance, Wesley challenged Methodists to end slavery. And addressing the needs of the poor. All of these things are ways in which Christians, over time, have recognized God moves in these things. He takes ordinary humans in these things. And he transforms them by renewing their minds by correcting the way they think about God, for exchanging lies about God, for truth about God, which then results in right living. And so as we move into this 2019, I would encourage you not just to set goals that are based on your own power to change yourself, but to seek ways in which Christ's power can renew our minds and transform our lives. And we're going to move into a time of communion. And communion is a way in which Christians have always talked about the grace of God coming into our lives. And I'd like to think about this for just a moment. Because in the act of communion, we literally are taking something external to ourselves. Something that is not of our own body. Taking it into us, and then it becomes part of our body. Which is really what Christ is doing in us. When we take communion and allow the body and the blood of Christ to be offered to us, and we take it, we are actually taking it to become a part of who we are. And we believe as Christians that this grace of God carries with it the power to change us. And so we're going to move into this time of communion. When Christ in the upper room took the bread. He was sitting around an ordinary table with his disciples. 
And he took the bread and he broke it. And he offered it to them. And he said, take this bread, which is external from them, and eat it. Let it become a part of you, your very body. Take it into your life. And then he took the cup. And he gave thanks for it. And he offered it to them. He said, this is my blood. Which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. For you and for many. And guess what? We're the many. Do this in remembrance of me. And so when we come forward for communion, I'd love for us all just to reflect on the act of taking something external and taking it into our lives. And reflect on the way Christ can be renewing our minds, the way we can be transformed through his power, not relying on ourselves to be the agents of change. I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward as I say this prayer over our communion this morning. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and the cup. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world, until Christ comes in final victory, and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen.